please stand as we read the Holy Word of God, 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 4, to 14, and then we will sing the Gloria Patri after. Hear the Word of God. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it is a privilege to get to open the word of God with you this morning. And as Ryan mentioned earlier, our families do go way back. We lived on the corner of Dulce and Cameron. When I was about four or five years old, they lived down the street on Cameron. And this probably would have been just before Ryan was born or just after uh, his older brother and I, Taylor, were good friends. And where the bulk of my memories come from is the house they lived on in Chester. There was a lot of fun had in the backyard and basketball in the driveway. But my best memory was in their playroom. And there's not a lot of parents that would allow you to do this. So kudos to his parents. But we got to play dodgeball in their playroom. And it would be, you know, Nerf guns, be Frisbees, other types of and, you know, as you can imagine, Ryan was probably one of the harder ones to get out. Uh, very uh, adept at moving well. But that was one of those memories that stands out. Very grateful for the Heaton family. And moving back a couple years ago, it's been fun getting with Taylor a couple times. And we've got kids that are close in age and go to school together at Grace. And then also, too, I want to thank you. Uh, my parents were members of this church just before they moved to El Paso. And they speak fondly. Uh, of Tyler Perez, and so that was one of the harder parts of leaving for them. And uh, so, yeah, so thank you, and then also want to commend you uh, for giving John and his family a sabbatical. Uh, that is one of the greatest gifts a congregation can give a pastor. Uh, when I was in Jackson, uh, our senior pastor got a two-month sabbatical, and what was remarkable is not only the time that he got with his family, but when he came back, the refreshment and the energy and the joy with which he had both teaching from Scripture and engaging with people. Um, so it is going to be a blessing, um, not only for them, but for you as a congregation as well. And then last summer, our senior pastor, Ben Wheeler, and his family had sabbatical, and they were gone for the summer. And um, having him back, uh, it was a really sweet time. And just, yeah. So, yeah, well done. It is going to be a blessing, no doubt, for John and his family, but also uh, for your family as well. So we will be 
Uh, I have the opportunity to preach here a couple times over the next few months. We'll have three selections from the book of 1 John, and then we'll finish up with that long book of Jude. Uh, but 1 John chapter 2, uh, 7 through 14 is what was read, primarily focusing on 12 through 14. And there's a few pastors, commentator, would like to read just before we kind of get into the heart Uh, of this passage. And one of those is John Piper. And as I read this quote, you can probably hear that enthusiasm coming through his voice when he says this. This book encourages believers to have the full assurance that they have been born again. That is, that they have new spiritual life in them that will never die. John wants you. God wants you. To experience something in this letter that makes you profoundly confident that you have passed from death to life. So John and Jesus are jealous for us believers to know that judgment is behind us. Death is behind us. Because our judgment happened when Jesus was judged in our place. And our death happened when Jesus died in our place. And therefore new life is in us. And this life cannot perish. It cannot be taken away. It's eternal that's the assurance John and Jesus want for us. And 1 John 5, 13 spells it out specifically where it says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Piper's reminding us our salvation is secure as we sing in that hymn, In Christ Alone, that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. I had the opportunity For 15 years, to get to spend time with junior high and senior high students. Absolutely loved it. And there's a lot of things that you can imagine came up as, you know, know, hot topics or issues or things that teenagers would struggle with. But one of the ones that was a constant was, how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I'm not going to lose my salvation? And that's what John's doing for us in this passage. He's saying, hey, once you are in Christ, that salvation is is secure. And so John's going to kindly take us back to that assurance of the gospel, which we'll talk more about. And then there's another uh, quote. This is from British New Testament theologian Donald Guthrie. He made this observation about 1 John and want to tie it in for today, but especially when we um, get the opportunity to look at other parts of 1 John. But he says, nowhere else in the New Testament is the combination of faith and love so clearly brought out. And it seems probable that this is emphasized because of the behavior of the readers leaves much to be desired. And so it kind of leaves us with that question as modern evangelicals, is there much to be left desired when it comes to our faith and love? Or if we talk about kind of in our reformed theology, in our circles, the OPC, the PCA, are we known for faith and love? I love Reformed theology. Obviously, I have a degree that says Reformed Theological Seminary, so that kind of gives it away. But I love the denomination I'm a part of and and have a strong affinity for the OPC as well because there's so many similarities. But one of the things that often happens in our circles is our heads get very big and our hearts get very small. And the thing is, the truth of the truth of Reformed theology is what it should be doing is as we read and as we dive in, it should be making our hearts enormous. And so that's kind of what what Guthrie's getting at there is, hey, 
as we dive in, do the faith and love, do they match up? Is this a heart that's been changed by the gospel? And some of the things we're going to see this morning is we're going to see that danger of being bored with God and kind of what happens when we do suppress the truth. And on the flip side, we'll look at the joy of knowing the weighty God, that our weighty God is the furthest thing from boring. And in fact, when we truly know and experience God, it will arrest our attention and admiration more than anything else. So we're going to look heavily, 12 through 14. Many of us are familiar with a lot of other verses in 1 John. This is probably not where we go to um, naturally in 1 John, this short little section. Like I said, I lived in Mississippi for eight years. A name in Mississippi that meant a lot is Manning. Uh, it means a little bit more in Texas now for those University of Texas fans now that Arch Manning is on campus down there in Austin. But what was interesting is when I was there, more people knew about Peyton and Eli Manning, you know, because they were the ones that were playing on Sundays. Eli had just finished at Ole Miss. And a lot of times people forgot about Archie, uh, their dad. And if any of you are football fans, go back and watch some of his highlights from Ole Miss or with the Saints when they were the Aints. It is incredible. And so sometimes in scripture, we miss some of these just nuggets that are in there because there's so many other great passages around it. And that's what 12 through 14 is for us. So let us appreciate the beauty of this passage. And the first thing that we see there is listen up. Um, We see a term of endearment where John is addressing them, my little children. And it kind of brings that question, why is he addressing them as my little children? And it's not because they're young children or young believers here. He's addressing all believers. And what he's telling us is all believers, we all still have a lot to learn. No matter how many degrees we hang on the wall, no matter how much experience we have, certifications for our job that we carry, there is always, always more for us to learn. And we need to make sure that we never enter a situation thinking, I've got this. There's nothing new for me. We do need to come to situations like a young child. A young child, their favorite word is usually why, why, why? And a lot of times to the point of the frustration of an older generation. But the reason they're asking why is they want to figure out the world around them. They're trying to learn. And so for us is we need to make sure that we have that constant appetite, that we don't grow stale from learning and growing, and especially as it goes to the things of God, because as we begin to learn and grow and grasp, that's when the gospel begins to change us. And then also one of the things that we see in this passage, we see repetition. And so it kind of makes us ask, what's the point of repetition? And John is using here, if you have, probably haven't counted yet, there's 94 words here, depending on your translations, but ESV, 94 words in these three verses that are here. Most junior high girls' text threads are going to contain more than 94 words. So John packs a powerful punch, but he also repeats. So why repetition? And the thing is, one of the things in real estate, I grew up around it. I'm back in it now. But real estate, there's three key principles. Location, location, location. At the end of the day, the thing that is going to drive that price more than anything else is location. Just like we know, oceanfront property is going to carry a much higher value than somewhere in Iowa or Nebraska. No offense if you're from there, have family there, but that's just, that's the truth. It's going to carry more. 
location, 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 emphasizing it. Or if you're in school or have been in school and the teacher repeats something, not just twice, but three times, that's important. I might need to know that. That might show up on a test. John's doing something similar for us. He's saying, hey, listen up. What I'm saying, this is important. So he uses that term, little children, and he's reminding us, listen up, take note, hang on every word from this book with great expectation because this book has the power to rock our world and change us forever and for the better. And that brings us to the second thing. Don't let God become weightless. Verses 13 and 14, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So who is John addressing in this passage? It's, it's not just referring to young men or new converts here. It's men and women in the church community who've known God for a period of time um, and have experienced that intimate knowledge of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. What he's doing is he's inviting and reminding them, saying, Christian, look back. Look back when God first grabbed your heart. And we have to ask ourselves, do we remember that? Do we remember when God brought us to salvation, when he opened our eyes to the depths of our sin and the beauty of his grace? And then for us, you know, a lot of times in the Christian world, we call that our testimony. And we remember back to that first time. And there's usually, for us, there's the first of a lot of things that we remember. You know, we remember the first day of school, or we may remember the first start on the soccer team, or we may remember the first kiss, or the first dance, the first day of college, first day on the job, first house as a married couple. A lot of times the first time sticks out, but it can also fade over time. And for the believer, if the truths of God changing us begin to fade, that's when God begins to become weightless. But as we reflect on when God first saved us, it provides that reminder of what God saved us from and how God has been at work ever since. So John wants to make sure that mature believers have this perspective because it keeps us from losing heart. He wants to make sure that we don't grow weary on this long way home. And as mature believers in the Christian community, the other thing that we're challenged to do is to pass this down, to pass this down to the next generation. And if God's become weightless to us, then the next generation is going to take note quickly and say, it's really not that important. And John is aware of that truth, kind of as we mentioned, as time goes on, we can become less enamored with something. Um, you know, something loses its interest over time. Um, for 15 years, I had the opportunity every summer we would go either from Jackson, Mississippi or Birmingham, Alabama, we'd drive the four to five hours down to the Florida Panhandle. And there was the, you know, one of the biggest dumps on the nicest beach, Laguna Beach Christian Retreat Center, um, right there, beautiful beaches. And there were a few years we would take students that had never seen the ocean before. And one of the things that was so fun is as we would drive and as we got to the ocean, they'd see the ocean, those eyes would be big and they're just glued on the ocean. And then those students who've been ever since they were little kids, you know, they're still, they're on their phones or they're still talking, listening to music, whatever. They're not enamored by the ocean. And those kids, when we pulled up, you know, first thing they do is they go straight to the ocean. They want to stick their feet in the ocean. They're enamored with it. 
Or for some of you, you may enjoy, I do, I love technology. When the iPhone came out, it was incredible. And you know, you're going to have Apple again this fall release the next iPhone. But one of the things you don't see anymore is you don't see people camping out days ahead of time, waiting in long lines to get an iPhone. You can have it delivered to your house the next day if you don't want to go to the store and pick it up. We lose interest in things. And so John's saying, don't, don't, don't let God become weightless. Don't lose interest. And it brings up a quote from David Wells. He had it in his book, God in the Wasteland. He says, it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I don't mean that he's ethereal, lacking substance, but rather he's become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He's lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than the television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. And his definition highlights our problem. We're interested in far too many other things. You know, along the way, we'd rather be entertained than enlightened, or we'd rather be distracted than discipled. In a lot of ways, it could be the things of God just bore us. And that's one of the biggest obstacles. We've, we've become indifferent toward the God who saves. You'll have individuals who say, hey, I believe in God, and I've been to church ever since my parents took me. But then my parents really weren't, aside from church, that into the things of God. So now that same view's passed on. Or we would rather watch hours of Netflix, Hulu, whatever our choice is, than spend 30 minutes in the Word of God. Or we'd rather play games on our phones throughout the day than converse with the God who saves in prayer. We'd rather hide behind text messages and Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and Snapchat and enjoy the fellowship of believers. There was, some of you may be familiar with the Gospel Coalition. And I think this was about three or four months ago. I came across an article. Sometimes their articles, just the title catches your name. And the author said, I lost my mom to Facebook. <laughs> and I was like, I, was like, I got to read this. And what the author was pointing out was his mom, who didn't grow up with a phone, didn't grow up with social media, but hopped on Facebook you know, in I think her late 50s, now doesn't have the same level of community and fellowship, even within her own family, because she knows what's going on in everybody else's lives through Facebook. And so, you know, it's one of those things is a lot of times we're like, man, it's just the younger generation. They're on their phones all the time. No, it spans everybody. And for us, we can be more intentional with that than we can in our relationship and fellowship with believers. That's why what was happening behind here in between the services, seeing a church gather together, community, fellowship, that is a good thing. And then also too, sometimes we'll, we'll go for the false intimacy that comes from attending a concert or a college football game and the joy of gathering Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And all of these things in and of themselves are not bad, but our hearts can gravitate towards them quicker than the things of God. And that's why we have to ask ourselves, what do I love more? 
And Lord, if it's not you, help me to gravitate toward the things of you. And so for us, if there is maturity in our faith, let us set an example for believers by serving the glorious and the weighty God who transforms us and those around us on the long way home. The third thing, the final thing, a word to the young. Assurance, it's a sweet thing. Verses 13 and 14, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. As I said earlier, the teenage heart's prone to doubt. But one of the things that's true is it's not just the teenage heart. The teenage heart just expresses it a lot more visibly than usually the older heart will. And my RUF campus minister at TCU, Dustin Salter, he would welcome us with a phrase each week that eventually I would welcome students in Jackson and in Birmingham with. And it came from Jerry Bridges, a former Tylerite. And he would say, we believe you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And never so good that you don't stand in utter need of God's grace. And I remember when I walked into RUF and heard that for the first time, I was like, that's it. It captures the room. Because you have individuals who walk into a room and they can't fathom that there is a God who would love them. And that's what we're going to dwell on for a minute. But then there's also individuals, and especially sometimes, sadly, like I was alluding to earlier in our reformed world, we walk into a room and we think, yeah, I'm a pretty good catch. It's a good thing God picked me for his team. That's never the mindset we need. But sometimes our hearts will gravitate that way. And that's why I always loved Dustin Salter introducing that each week. And so that first part, we believe you're never so bad that you'll be on the reach of God's grace. That's what John has in view here. Because for many of us, we're thinking, man, my mouth is filthy. The things that I've said, the things that have come out of here, there is no way that there's enough grace to forgive that. Or I've made my way around so many guys or so many girls. There's no way that God can cover that sin. Or I got way too crazy weekend after weekend in college or post-college. There's no way there's enough grace for that. Or I've talked so poorly, spread so many rumors, and am prone to gossip. God can't save me. These struggles with assurance, they're common for all of us. Like I said, usually youth and younger believers, and that's what John has in line here. But there's a great hymn by William Gadsby. The love of Christ is rich and free. And it's reminding us of that assurance for the believer. And he says this, the love of Christ is rich and free. Real quick, there is nothing in this world apart from Christ that's both rich and free. Fixed on his own, eternally nor earth nor hell can it remove. Long as he lives, his own he'll love. His loving heart engaged to be, their everlasting surety. T'was love that took their cause in hand, and love maintains it to the end. And I love the chorus. Love cannot from its post withdraw, nor death nor hell, nor sin, nor law can turn the surety's heart away. He'll love his own to endless day. Like I said, working with youth, 
you would see these junior high and teenage hearts longing for acceptance, longing for belonging. Tell me that what I do matters. Tell me that you love me. Tell me that you care for me. And it exposes what all of our human hearts want. We want a love like this, that from its post will never withdraw, that nor death, nor hell, nor sin, nor law can turn the surety's heart away. He's loving us to endless day. Gatsby goes on to say this, love has redeemed his sheep with blood and love will bring them safe to God. Love calls them all from death to life and love will finish all their strife. He loves through every changing scene, nor aught from him can Zion wean. Not all the wonderings of her heart can make his love for her depart. And the final stanza says this, at death beyond the grave he'll love. In endless bliss his own shall prove the blazing glory of that love which never could from them remove. Christian, that's the assurance. That's the assurance that we have. And John's kind words here reflecting this gracious God. So just as this hymn was reminding us, twice John is reminding the young believer, hey, you've overcome the evil one. Your sins are no longer counted against you. That's why it's such good news. And it's one of the most mind-boggling truths of the Christian faith. We get Christ's righteousness credited us justification, that one-time act, because of the blood of Christ, God no longer sees our lying lips. He no longer sees our lustful thoughts, our greedy desires, our sinful messes that may have been high school, college, or the working world. He no longer sees our arrogance or our pride, and we can go on with this list for a long time. But we can take it to the bank because the blood of Christ will not hold our sin and judgment against us. But this side of heaven, it does, doesn't mean the fight against these behaviors is over. Knowing that Christ's righteousness has been credited to us, that all our sin has been washed white as snow, as we talking about nothing but the blood, as was mentioned, the assurance of pardon, our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the motivation until Jesus returns or we're called home to wage war against sin. But the beautiful thing is we don't fight alone. We know the Father. We have forgiveness through the Son. And the Holy Spirit carries us along in the fight. But there's another tool that John mentions here as well that's been given to the Christian. The Word of God. And as Christians, it's very easy for us to neglect the Word of God. We're surrounded by great blogs, commentaries, books, sermons. Again, you think back to the Reformation. If we told someone, hey, there's going to be this device and you can have the word of God with you 24-7, they wouldn't come close to believing us. The access that we have to the word of God is unparalleled in human history, but yet we're quick to neglect it. And right here, John is saying, don't forget the most important weapon in your arsenal as you fight against these sins. We can't fight without it. It would be like the baseball player who studies every pitcher, studies every pitch, even studies the weather conditions to know that, hey, when it's this temperature, the ball has a tendency to do this or do that. But when it comes time to come up to the plate, he goes up without a bat. As Christians, often we're like that. It's crazy, 
but we often go without the word of God. We may study all sorts of things, but if we don't read the word of God, our fight against sin is gonna be far more difficult because it's the word that gives us instruction and it gives us encouragement on this life and the one to come. We need the word of God like fish need water, like humans need oxygen to breathe. The word's not supplemental. It's not optional in the Christian life. It is the driving force in the Christian's life. And if there are some Christians loopy enough to think they don't need the word of God or that the word of God has a few holes or a few errors in it, then we have to ask, what are they really basing their faith on? Because when you remove the inerrant and authoritative from the word of God, there's nothing to stand upon. So John's reminding the young believer, as well as the old believer, treasure the word of God, obey the word of God, believe the word of God. And as we finish, we have to ask that question. Have we experienced the joy that comes with knowing we have overcome the evil one? If we haven't, then we need to cry out to Jesus. Lord God, help me overcome the evil one. And if we have experienced the joy of overcoming the evil one, then let us hold fast to the word of God and let us boast in the weightiness and the greatness of the God who saves and redeems. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for Sundays and we thank you for the rhythm week after week to gather as your people. And Lord God, we pray that you would give us a great love for your word, Lord, that we would, we would go at it like a dog goes to a bone, Lord, that we would gnaw on it for every last little bit. And Lord God, pray that you would help us to walk in the confidence of our salvation, not because of what we have done, but because of entirely what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And Lord God, may that give us a confidence that is rooted in you. Lord God, thank you that you are weighty. And may we delight in your weightiness. And Lord God, give us great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.